Hello, everyone. This is Machines and Masterpieces, a podcast that explores the intersection of culture, technology, and economics. My name is Christoph Spires, and I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at HEC Paris. My guest today is Pavel Kiriev of NCAT, who's recently written two papers about price formation in NFT markets. Hi, Pavel. Hello. So I want to talk to you about two of your uh, recent papers on NFTs. So in the first paper, you look at the market for crypto kitties. So can you maybe explain what attracted you to this particular marketplace? Sure. So when I was doing research on NFTs, when I first got started on this topic, crypto kitties was actually the biggest NFT market out there. I started researching this around 2019, towards the end of 2019. And I had been following blockchain-related research topics and, and blockchain-related industries for a while before then, then as well. Uh, I was just waiting for the right time to find an interesting research context, something that was relevant to my own experience, which is mostly in analyzing data from digital platforms and digital marketplaces. And when I found out about CryptoKitties and also about the existence of other types of non-fungible tokens that are similar to them, that really motivated me to, to get started and, and start investigating how these markets function, how to determine the values of, of the NFTs in these markets, and just learn as much as I, as I possibly could about them. So yeah, so, so mostly what attracted me to CryptoKitties was the fact that it was the biggest market at the time, but there are also other markets that are, are quite similar to it. And now we have NFT collections of, of all sorts mm. that are emerging. Yeah, so, so I'll tell you a story. In the summer of 2019, a colleague of mine told me we should do something on CryptoKitties. Mm. I was like, are you crazy? I mean, nobody's interested in this. And then here we are a few years later and everybody wants to write about NFTs. Yeah. Uh, and I was you were, you were an early adopter, I guess. Yeah, I was very much in the same position because uh, I had, I remember I had visited the page of OpenSea and, uh, you know, CryptoKitties Marketplace several times throughout the year. And every time I visited, I was always wondering, is there enough data here to be able to do some interesting research? Is this a sufficiently mm. interesting context? Is the market big enough? And I always hesitated until the pandemic started. And then I had more free time on my hands and I decided to actually go in and start collecting data and start doing research on this topic. Yeah. So, so one contribution of your paper is that uh, you show that CryptoKitties are valued just like physical collectibles in the sense that the rarity seems to matter. So what, what dimensions or what characteristics of CryptoKitties seem to determine their value? Sure. So one of the goals of this research was, was first of all, to explain, are these markets different from traditional markets for rare collectibles, like let's say baseball cards or collectible coins uh, that are often sold through eBay and studied in that context. I wanted to understand uh, to what extent these markets differ and if they have actually many similarities with traditional markets. It turns out that in terms of the attributes of the items that are sold, in the context of crypto kitties, these are the appearance attributes of the kitty. Each kitty has a set of discrete attributes that describe its appearance. This is very similar to how modern-day popular NFT collectibles markets also function. Different items have different types of traits, and combinations of traits can be more or less rare. Individual traits can be more or less rare, and so on. And then CryptoKitties also have identifiers, numerical attributes like their ID number or their generation number, which are both measures of how early in the production cycle of this NFT project was this particular NFT created. So I focused on those, those parameters and a very sort of simple analysis correlating transaction prices to these, these characteristics showed that actually CryptoKitties uh, look a lot like traditional 
markets in terms of how people value these rare attributes, at least relatively speaking, uh, attributes that are more rare in terms of the traits tend to be valued more. Uh, numerical identifiers that are closer to one or closer to zero, indicating that asset came uh, earlier on, uh, are also valued more. And that is a little bit interesting because these are digital items. And so it isn't very straightforward to, to make the connection necessarily from how physical items are, how physical rare items are valued to how you know, digital image files that have this uh, NFT technology attached to them uh, should be valued. Yeah, so, so you, you really find that rarity matters just like in physical collectibles, let's say. So in that sense, it's, it's maybe a bit dissimilar from art or artworks, right? Or did, did you also look whether like visual characteristics or like aesthetic characteristics matter? Like are certain colors more valuable than other types of color or... Yes, uh, I haven't looked in depth at the the aesthetics of the NFTs. I have looked at art markets, though. So I've done some analysis that, that isn't in the paper, but which focuses on a collection called Super Rare. And uh, preliminary analysis there showed that a significant chunk of the variation in prices can be explained by artists or by some you know clear quantitative traits of the work. So aesthetics may, may definitely play a part uh, in, in helping explain that remaining variation. But it seems like in, in these markets, people are very focused on the traits, on the rarity. But I do believe that aesthetics do, do play a part as well. So in your paper, you also go beyond identifying which factors determine prices. And you actually shed some light on how standard pricing models based on observed transactions may lead to inaccurate valuations, right? And this is in a way a critique that you often hear in illiquid asset markets that maybe observed prices are not a good proxy for resale value, market value, because there's a selection bias in what trades. And the way that you put it, or the way I understand what you do, is that you say, well, prices are actually not accurately reflecting market values because sellers do not make optimal sales decisions. Right? So can you explain a bit more what you mean when you say that traditional approaches to valuation based on observed prices may be biased because of the decisions that sellers make? Maybe to do that, it's also useful to first explain how things trade in the CryptoKitties markets. And then you can explain what the, what the biases are that, that we see in this market. Yes, uh, CryptoKitties markets are a, it's a peer-to-peer marketplace, and it shares many similarities with, with many other NFT markets. Uh, perhaps the biggest market that is, it is most similar to these days is the Axie Infinity market. Axie Infinity was an NFT game that really exploded in popularity and uh, has been generating billions of dollars in transaction volume. And it, it was actually inspired by, by the CryptoKitties market. So these markets are very similar, and participants in these markets will acquire CryptoKitties. They can obtain them either by buying them from, from a participant. They can obtain them through a process called breeding, which is a, a game mechanic in this universe where you can create new cats if you have, let's say, two cats in your possession. Or they could buy them directly from the, the developer, which is what happened in the beginning and how these CryptoKitties were introduced into the market. So the result is that it, it becomes quite a, a large peer-to-peer marketplace where people are producing new assets, exchanging these assets. In order to sell an item, you have to use the descending auction mechanism, uh, which means that you need to start. Uh, you need to set a starting price, an ending price, which is typically lower than the starting price, and a, a time range uh, during which the price falls linearly from the starting price to the ending price. This mechanism is also used a bit in Axie Infinity markets, so that's why these two are kind of similar, and some of the results from the CryptoKitties analysis may generalize to, to that market as well. But most recent uh, NFT collections have started shifting towards a fixed price model, where you basically have to set one fixed price, and somebody will either come in and purchase at that price or, or not. 
So that's the basic structure of the, the CryptoKitties market. The question that I, I set out to answer was uh, this very relevant practical question of how do we actually value these assets? What's the right way to value NFTs? And this is a question that you hear often in NFT communities. People are wondering, what's the right price for this NFT that I purchased? Or should I buy this NFT? Is it priced fairly? Is, is it something that makes sense for me to purchase? And I think what makes these markets a bit different also from traditional illiquid asset markets is that because all of the assets are, are digital, you're able to build applications on top of applications. So let's say we have the CryptoKitties NFT marketplace. If we're able to develop a robust system for valuing CryptoKitties at scale and at a very high time frequency, it's possible to actually build additional apps on top of that that enable, let's say, lending of CryptoKitties or borrowing of CryptoKitties or paying out, let's say, interest as a function of a CryptoKitties value and so on. So, so this, this ended up being quite a relevant practical question. And it's a question that I wanted to sort of examine from the perspective of how these markets function and, and how different techniques applied to these markets would, would play out. So in terms of the, the results and sort of the main findings of this analysis, I compared two approaches in this research. One approach uses hedonic regressions, which is when we use data on observed sale prices from this market and run regressions to correlate those prices with characteristics of the assets. Then we can, based on these regressions, infer reasonable sort of market prices for these items at, at any point in time as a function of their, of their characteristics. So that's an approach that actually many companies in the NFT space have started to adopt. And it's the reason why they're doing it is partially because it's the easiest approach to start with, and also because often the data that is stored on the blockchain related to NFT transactions only pertains to the successful sales that happened in these marketplaces. So the data that you may need to do more complex analysis, such as attempted sales that were not successful, is sometimes not available on blockchain. So that makes it more complicated to do this type of valuation. Uh, so that's the standard approach that's being used. And in the paper, I run a machine learning version of the hedonic price regression, which just allows for more flexibility in the interactions between the different characteristics of the NFTs and some nonlinearities as well. And I compare that to an approach which is a structural modeling-based approach. And that approach tries to more explicitly take into account the characteristics of the marketplace where these crypto kitties are selling. It tries to take into account the selling mechanism that is used, namely the fact that things are sold using descending auctions. And it also tries to take into account the fact that some auctions do not result in a sale, and that contains useful information. Now, the two biases that, that I identify, the first one is the selection bias, which is kind of an intuitive bias. It basically results from the fact that hedonic approaches tend to ignore data on unsuccessful transactions. And if we account for those, we actually find that these two approaches can disagree for these specific types of assets that tend to not sell uh, a lot in the data. And the second bias is the mispricing bias. And this bias is motivated by an observation of the market that actually a lot of people don't really know what to sell their items for. Uh, if you look at forums for, for, for CryptoKitties, if you look at the Discords, if you look at the Discord channel, if you look at the Reddit channel, you see that the main question people are asking is, what is the value of my, my NFT and how should, I, how should I sell it? How much can I get for it? So that is some anecdotal evidence. And I show also some evidence in the data that people might not be pricing things optimally. Uh, so the structural model tries to estimate a model of how buyers react in this market and then derive optimal pricing decisions from this model. And what I find is that once we actually consider optimal pricing decisions, we again arrive at valuations, fair valuations of these items that can differ in some interesting ways from valuations based on hedonic machine learning approaches.
Yeah, so it's very practical in a way, right? So I guess also people in the market are very interested in this, right? Because basically your research can arguably help people make better decisions, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, exactly. And I was also intrigued in your paper. You, you, at the end, you, you, you develop or you present a support tool that can help sellers make optimal pricing decisions. So my question is, like, can you say a bit more about how this works? And also, do you, do you know if people actually use your model in implementing when sale decisions when they're thinking about the start and end price and timing and so on? Exactly. So the main goal of this of this research was actually to, to make this strong practical contribution and in the process uh, provide insights to the academic community about how these markets function, how different they are from traditional markets, and what are some implications of how they work. So then towards towards the end of the of the paper, uh, we developed this decision tool where people can input the token ID for an NFT, and it spits out various statistics that could help them in achieving a better pricing decision. That includes the optimal starting and ending price based on the structural model that takes into account all of the complexities of this market. It also spits out expected sale probability and the expected sale price, which is interpreted as the valuation um, in this context. In terms of usage, actually, results from, from this paper and a version of some of the insights found in this tool uh, have been used by a company that developed NFT-based valuation uh, models. And many of these results actually helped the company raise a, a $22 million uh, funding round to do further research and development into NFT valuation. So from a practical perspective, I would consider the contributions to be a success, given that at least one company is, is, is using the results and, and able to sort of contribute to the industry. From an academic perspective, of course, there's still work to do to make sure that this research is interesting to other academics and, and makes a, a significant contribution there as well. So do you plan to do more work on this, on developing tools or expand this to other NFT types? Because I guess the tool itself is really focused on CryptoKitties, right? So you, I guess you put in the CryptoKitty ID and then it spits out some statistics. Yeah. So uh, in terms of sort of developing and expanding this tool to other collections, I think the most useful aspect of the version of the tool presented in the paper is that it demonstrates a proof of concept, very rough wireframe demo of how we can think about uh, scalable valuations in these markets. But to take that to other markets or to develop it into something that can be running constantly on new data for new collections, uh, it becomes a, a significant engineering challenge. So for those types of tasks, we need an engineering team, we need backend developers to manage the, the data, because there's always new data coming in on sales from new collections that needs to be indexed. We need a front-end team to organize how this information is presented to users in these markets. And of course, machine learning engineers to actually, or, or data scientists uh, and other type, types of empiricists to actually kind of maintain these models and make sure they, they continue functioning well, even if the uh, nature of the NFTs they're serving keeps on changing. So I've kind of left that part of the process to, to industry at this point, but I think uh, my contribution is mostly in helping understand how to approach this problem and providing some proof of concept for how it can be addressed. Okay, so in another more recent papers, you, you focus on NFT marketplace design and sort of you leave the CryptoKitty space and uh, look at some other markets. And in particular, the focus of that other paper is on differences in bidding costs between NFT marketplaces, right? So maybe this is not sort of well known to everyone or, or, or very intuitive. So can you say something about the heterogeneity and costs that exist across marketplaces? Like how do marketplaces differ in the, the costs that are associated with bidding? And also maybe 
related to that, like how do sort of online marketplaces differ from NFT sales at traditional auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's? Of course. So this uh, paper is called NFT Marketplace Design and, and Market Intelligence. And uh, whereas the first paper, uh, which is called Infinite But Rare, that paper looks at valuation within the context of one particular collection and proposes some ideas for how to do that, that properly. Uh, this paper now asks the question, what if we have multiple collections? Let's say we have two different NFT projects. How do we compare them to each other and draw inferences from the various statistics that we see about sales prices in these markets, transaction volume, and so on? And this paper was largely inspired by the uh, conflict between two prominent NFT collections, Board Apes Yacht Club and CryptoPunks, which are both very high-profile collections generating billions of dollars in, in, in transaction volume per year. And these collections both had very different philosophies in terms of what rights are awarded to holders of the NFTs. This is a bit of an aside, but there's kind of a debate and a bit of a misunderstanding about what exactly an NFT is and what rights it assigns to the holder of the NFT. And Board Apes, Yacht Club, and CryptoPunks really brought this debate to the limelight when it was revealed that owners of Board Apes were actually awarded uh, full intellectual property ownership over the assets, over the image files of the Board Apes that they were purchasing, which meant that they could commercialize these. They could use those images to build a business around them or use those images as marketing to attract people to services that they offered, like, let's say, building a restaurant or something like that. Whereas in the context of CryptoPunks, the limitations were quite significant in terms of what people could do with their NFTs, even if they purchased it and technically owned the NFT. They could make at most $100,000 from uh, licensing uh, the intellectual property. And as a result, it was much more limited compared to the Board Ape situation. Now, when this information was revealed and when it was made clearer to the audience that collections can differ along these dimensions, there was a shock in the market and we saw the prices of CryptoPunks starting to slightly fall, whereas the prices of Bored Apes started to increase. And that was used to conclude by, by market intelligence companies, by news outlets, that Bored Apes have now become more valuable than CryptoPunks in some sense. So the question I wanted to look at is, is this really the case? Can we really objectively say that Bored Apes have become more valuable than CryptoPunks? Or is it the case that how these two marketplaces function actually differs substantially, and that is the driver of these differences in the valuations. So it turns out that CryptoPunks and Board Apes are sold through two different marketplaces. Board Apes are sold through OpenSea, uh, which is currently the largest and, and most likely the most popular NFT marketplace. It has many other collections on it as well. Whereas CryptoPunks, because they predate the ERC-721 standard for NFTs, they actually have their own marketplace that where they trade. And these marketplaces can differ in the rules they impose on participants. And the one specific dimension that I focus on is bidding costs. Namely, in addition to listing these items for fixed prices in these marketplaces, sellers can also expect bidders to come in and to place bids on the listings, uh, which the seller can then accept or, or reject. In the marketplaces differ significantly in terms of their bidding costs. For example, OpenSea has explicitly you know, written blog posts where they encourage the use of algorithmic bidding technologies, that where they even discuss the possibility of having purely automated, non-fungible token marketplaces where bids are placed by, by bots. Uh, whereas uh, the Larva Labs marketplace, which is where CryptoPunks are selling, actually imposes a bidding cost. Officially, it is quite neutral about the use of, of bots. They haven't made any statements for or against them. But there is a significant bidding cost compared to OpenSea that participants have to pay when they place a bid. And that cost is in the form of a 
a gas fee for registering the bid on uh, the Ethereum blockchain. Now, in addition to this, if we look at even other marketplaces like the Axie Infinity marketplace, that one explicitly prohibits bots and uh, they've published materials saying that they, they will identify and ban accounts to try to automate interactions with the application. So because of this, these policies can differ significantly across the different marketplaces, and that has implications for the prices that we see, um, not just for the bids that are being placed, but also the listing prices that people list items for. Because as a seller, when I list an item for a particular price, I will anticipate the bids that I might receive for it. So I might try to set a price that's a bit higher than expected if I think that I'm going to get lots of bidders who are going to come in and end up competing for a chance to win, win this item. So a CryptoPunk can also sell outside of the Larva Labs marketplace, correct? I mean, it can, it is CryptoPunk more... sold at auction and... Yes, exactly. It can sell it in a different place as well, but it is difficult to do so because, as I mentioned, the CryptoPunks NFTs predates the sort of standard NFT framework called ERC721, uh, which is what OpenSea operates with predominantly. Uh, because of that, they exist in their own world and they're, they're sort of sold predominantly through the Larva Labs marketplace. You can take a CryptoPunk and wrap it, which basically means you create uh, another asset that follows the standard that's necessary to list this CryptoPunk on a different marketplace. But the transaction volume that involves these, these wrapped CryptoPunks is very, very small compared to the the transaction volume on the CryptoPunks marketplace. And the Bored Ape, Bored Ape can also sell outside of OpenSea or not? Uh, yes, but the same thing applies to Bored Apes. Mm. Bored Apes predominantly sell through OpenSea, which is the largest uh, marketplace to date. And during the period of the study, that it was really the dominant one. In, in the recent months, other marketplaces have emerged, like LooksRare, for example. Uh, but during the period when I was looking at this data, OpenSea was really the only channel where, where Bored Apes were selling. And you can't really take a board ape and put it on the Larva Labs marketplace because they use different standards. Mm. So it offers this environment where you have two separate marketplaces that differ in some dimensions uh, in terms of their marketplace design. And for that reason, it's possible to sort of do comparisons uh, across. Well, actually, it makes it difficult to do comparisons across them because of these of these differences. Yeah. So if you bid on a CryptoPunk in the Larva Labs environment, you pay a bidding cost. If you bid on a CryptoPunk at Christie's or Sotheby's, there's no bidding costs, right? So that's also a different zone. Right. So then if we add Christie's and Sotheby's to the equation, these are also completely different environments. And they differ not just along the dimensions of bidding costs, but also in terms of the promotion that these auctions receive. That's another parameter which can differ across marketplaces. Uh, there are several several ways in which in which marketplaces can differ. The one that I focus on, though, is bidding costs, just because it's it's one way to demonstrate how differences along this one parameter across markets can lead to very different marketplace statistics in terms of the prices that we transaction volumes and so on. Yeah, so you then use data in your paper from trading in CryptoPunks to estimate the effects or counterfactual effects of changes in bidding costs, right? So you're going to see how change in bidding costs would have effects effect on better and seller behavior. So, so could you summarize your main findings of that analysis? Yes. Uh, what I find there is that if we reduce bidding costs, so let's say we take the CryptoPunks market and we make it look a bit more like the OpenSea market, where it's easier to bid, algorithmic bidding is encouraged, there are no fees for, for placing, placing bids. If we make it look a bit more like that, then naturally what happens is we see an increase in listing prices in the market. We see an increase in bidding activity, which pumps up the bids that are placed. And the market actually starts to look much more attractive in the sense that we may infer from that that actually the crypto punks are becoming more valuable, whereas in reality, uh, it's just that the market design is changing. And the implication of that finding is that, well, 
if we compare across collections, one of them has a high bidding cost, one of them has a low bidding cost in its marketplace, that may explain differences in the prices. There's also an implication for looking at the same NFT collection across time within the same marketplace. For example, if bots start to become more common on OpenSea over time, we might see an increase in NFT prices because it's just easier to place bids, and that's driving some of the listing prices up as well as the bids up. So we might conclude that NFTs are becoming more valuable, whereas in reality, there's this unobserved uh, market design variable that's, that's changing in the background. Another interesting finding is that if we look within a collection and we try to compare the rare items within the collection to the more common items within the collection, the gap between their prices ends up shrinking once bidding becomes more easier to do. And that's because this impact of reducing the cost of bidding impacts the prices of cheaper items more than it impacts the prices of the expensive items. So if we see these changes in the bidding costs, we can also make different inferences about how people value different traits. So then it goes back to this first paper about how do we actually assign valuations to traits that are rare versus traits that are more common in contexts where the market design can potentially change. So for CryptoPugs, the bidding costs are they're like gas fees, right? Basically, yes. Yeah. So one might say or might think that given the value of the average CryptoPunk, that these gas fees are almost negligible. Or am yeah. I being too naive there? No, that's reasonable. The, the gas fees uh, can be small compared to the value of a CryptoPunk, but then we also have to consider the sort of liquidity of these markets. That is, what is the probability that somebody who obtains a CryptoPunk will be able to resell it at some point for this very high price? Once we multiply you know, the expected value of a CryptoPunk by the chance of selling it, that number falls uh, considerably. So the expected sort of value of uh, you know, attempting to, let's say, resell a punk tends to be much smaller. And then another issue is that when it comes to designing uh, bots that, that place bids on a large number of listings, these gas fees can easily add up if you adopt the strategy of you know, bidding at scale and just placing, placing you know, low bids on, on every listing that you're interested in. Uh, bidding costs can significantly deter that strategy. Whereas in the OpenSea marketplace, if you don't have bidding costs, you can easily place bids uh, on pretty much anything and uh, you, you wouldn't be limited by, by the design of the market. So do you also have advice for designers of these markets? I mean, I think you're, what you're doing here is really taking sort of a, an outsider perspective. Like, okay, you cannot compare price statistics across markets, but if you would be consulting... Uh, the designer of a new marketplace? Is there also implications from, from what you do? Yes, I think there's advice for the markets, but there's also advice for market intelligence platforms. Uh, so I'll speak to the latter one first. I think for market intelligence platforms, I would be interested in seeing some type of adjustment statistic introduced that controls for the market design of the marketplace when providing data on, let's say, the market cap of an NFT collection or the valuations for particular NFTs. So that could make comparisons across collections easier. And this would be useful to NFT collectors who collect beyond just one collection, uh, which is a large fraction of, of the NFT collectors out there. In terms of advice for the marketplaces themselves, I look at one simulation where I ask the question, uh, should you store bidding information on-chain or off-chain? That's because the fees that emerge on the CryptoPunks marketplace result from the fact that the bids have to be stored on-chain, which incurs gas fees. However, on the OpenSea marketplace, if we store the bids off-chain, meaning that we store them in a centralized database that's operated by OpenSea and not on the Ethereum blockchain, we can actually not impose those bidding costs on our users because we don't have to register these transactions in a blockchain. Uh, so I do some calculations which find the fixed cost investments for building the centralized, infra centralized infrastructure for storing bids 
that makes sense given the expected impact of reducing the bidding costs on marketplace activity, transaction volume, and marketplace revenues. So, but doesn't it go against the philosophy of NFT trading in a way to have like centralized servers which store bidding information off chain, etc.? Yeah, it definitely goes against the sort of ph- philosophy of decentralizing everything and decentralizing as many things as possible. However, in practice, many companies are striking a balance between the two where they decentralize what they believe is most important or what needs to remain the most secure, but they maybe centralize information that is more adjacent to uh, the core functionality of their platform. And that's mainly designed for the purpose of reducing transaction fees for customers and onboarding more users. Now, as other blockchains emerge that provide lower transaction fees than Ethereum or layer two solutions emerge for Ethereum, these centralized solutions may become less relevant and we may move closer to this world where more and more things, uh, more and more transaction information is stored on chain.